You are listening to a message from Bethany First Church of the Nazarene, online at bethanynaz.org. Good morning. This morning we are in the second week of a brand new sermon series. Pastor Rick started, started us off in it last week called The Life Well Lived. And we're looking at the message of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 through 7. And we're using this book by James Bryan Smith that's called Good and Beautiful Life, kind of as our guide through these next couple of weeks. Uh, and so you might want to pick it up and, and read along with us. Uh, there's a couple classes that are, that are doing it as well. Highly recommend it. So this morning we're going to look at Jesus' first words in this most famous collection of his sermon material. So would you turn with me to Matthew chapter 4, and we're going to start a little bit before he preaches. We're going to look at Matthew 4, verse 23. We'll begin reading there. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him. And he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. For many of us in this room, these might be very familiar words. For some of us, this might be the first time you've ever heard them, or maybe paid attention to them. <laughs> and I think, honestly, those of you who are less familiar with these words have an advantage over us who have heard them so many times because I think sometimes we can be so familiar with the words of Jesus that their meaning uh, slips away a little bit or our eyes glaze over and we think we know what it means but, but we're not really grappling with the full intended meaning of Jesus' words. So this morning, I'd like us to exercise some imagination some exploration, some freedom to not rush to know, think that we know what this means or not rush to how this applies to our lives. Let's just sit with it for a few minutes and, and maybe we can be surprised. Maybe the Holy Spirit can breathe new life and tell us about this kingdom that Jesus is teaching about. I think one of the first important things for us to look at um, is context. Context sounds really boring. <laughs> it's not something that you want to spend a lot of time on. It's not entertaining. It's not glitzy. But it's important because uh, everything that I do right now standing before you is coming through a filter of who you are sitting before me. 
I look into your faces and there are stories that I know and there are stories that I don't know, but the stories that I know and the people that you are and the backgrounds that we're coming from help to shape the words that I'm speaking to you. And the very same thing was true for Jesus. It mattered who was standing in front of him. It mattered the kinds of people that were there and the attitude and the emotions and the, the feelings that were present in the crowd um, because his words were spoken tailored to them. And so it's important for us to understand who they were so that we can understand the full meaning of what he was saying. So we have to start with these place names. Uh, a couple of places, Galilee, Syria, uh, Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and region across the Jordan. We have no idea where those places are, right? Unless you have, you know, the ancient map of Israel etched in your brain, which if you do, I mean, that's fantastic. I wish I had that. But unless you have that, those, those place names are pretty much meaningless to us. Well, Galilee was the northern part of Israel. It's the part that uh, Jesus grew up in. It's where he spent the majority of his ministry, but it was not really the place that you wanted to be from. Uh, Galilee was a little bit like the panhandle of Oklahoma. It, it, was, it was kind of the place that you just wanted to drive through as fast as possible. <laughs> um, and, and you could tell when someone was from Galilee because often they, they spoke a little bit differently or they just had kind of, you know, some quirky cultural tendencies that you were like, oh, I know where you're from. One of those Galileans. And then you have the Decapolis, which is actually the name of uh, ten cities, a group of ten cities, um, who were, had kind of gotten their founding during the Greek um, rule of that area, the time that the Greeks were in charge. And so they were Greek cities. They, they felt culturally different than the rest of Judea. Uh, not a lot of Jews there, some Jews, but not, they weren't cultures of like great religious Judaism. And then you have Jerusalem, which is the cultural center of all of Israel. And it's where the temple was held. It's where all of the religious and political elites were at. And so Jerusalem had a very different um, persona than, than the 10 cities or Galilee for certain. And then you have uh, all the er other areas of Judea mixed in, just kind of Jews from everywhere. And then you have the region across from the Jordan, which is not Israel at all. And then you have Syria, which is north of Israel, also not Israel at all. So when you are looking out, when you're standing where Jesus is standing, and you're looking out over all of this crowd, and you see people from all of these places, let me tell you who you're looking at. You're looking at hicks and hillbillies. And you're looking at city folk. And you're looking at some of the most religiously conscientious people who are hungry and who are seeking scripture and who are reading and, and, and devouring it. But you're also looking at people who, you know, for whatever reason, they just aren't very religious at all. Maybe their own choices have kind of distanced them from God. Or maybe they didn't have the financial ability to participate in the sacrificial system of the temple. And so they were kind of ostracized from the religious day, religious leaders of their day. Uh, you're also looking at people who had no Jewish heritage at all. People that didn't know the first thing about, uh, you know, what it meant to be Jew because they weren't born as a Jew. And so th this was all kind of foreign to them. They had heard about this Jewish God and the people of Israel were their neighbors, but it didn't really apply to them necessarily. 
Then you have people who are kind of half Jews, who the, the Jews really hated these people. I mean, they kind of looked at them like they were not even fully human, unfortunately. Uh, and so you have such an incredible mix, not only of socioeconomic and cultural background, but religious background and experience. You had people that knew nothing of scripture, and you had people that pretty much knew the whole thing. Not only that, though, I think it's really important for us to see some of the other words that describe these people. We can't gloss over words like sick and ill with various diseases, suffering severe pain, demon-possessed, having seizures, and people that were paralyzed. In ancient culture, without modern medicine, without hospitals, without medication, without doctors, without a lot of the answers to why people got sick, very often people who were chronically ill or chronically in pain, it was assumed that you had done something to get yourself that way. And so not only were, were, were people who were sick physically in pain and in need, but a lot of times they were very emotionally distraught as well. They were ostracized from community. They were uh, not thought well of. And so not only do you have people from all walks of life and all geographical locations, but now suddenly you also have a whole collection of people that honestly nobody else knows what to do with them. Nobody else really wants them. You have all of these people that really are incredibly undesirable, and yet Jesus is standing in the center, and they are just like, whoosh. he's a magnet for them. They just are drawn to him by the hundreds, by the thousands. They are crowding around him. And what's fascinating and important to realize about this portion of scripture is that Matthew is not describing a one-time event. A lot of the, the Greek verb tense and clues in the original text help point us to understand that he is summarizing and describing the whole of Jesus' ministry. This isn't just something that happened one time. This was describing what continuously happened through Jesus' years of ministry on earth. Continuously, over time, people from all over the known territories came thronging to him. Continuously, for years of Jesus' ministry, he continued to heal people. He continued to draw people that nobody else wanted to be with. Why were they there? I hope it doesn't make me you know, a bad pastor to ask that question because the Sunday school answer is, well, everybody wants to be where Jesus is. Yes, true. But honestly, these people traveled hundreds of miles. <laughs> what was so good? What was so appealing? What made a paralyzed person go through all of the horrible amount of work and trial and travail to get people to take them <laughs> from wherever they were, miles away from Jesus, and take them to see Jesus. What, what was it that brought them there? I think to understand their motivation, we have to understand the power of Jesus' message. And what was his message? The gospel, as, as we usually would tell someone, the gospel is that Jesus came 
to die for our sins so that we could be forgiven and spend our eternal lives with him, right? Well, I'm not saying that that's wrong. That is every portion of it right. It's just that that's not the gospel message that Jesus was preaching that drew people to him. The good news that he talked about was good news of the kingdom, which absolutely includes spiritual salvation and the forgiveness of sins, but is also incredibly more than that. I think it's difficult for us to understand because we're not really used to this kingdom language. It's foreign to us. But let me just say briefly that the kingdom is basically God's rule. It's a place where God is in charge and everything goes God's way. So a little bit of history here. Remember all the way back at the beginning of time and creation, that's how we started. All of the universe was under God's rule. It all was going the way he wanted it to go. And then one day, as we read in Genesis chapter 3, through some really sad events, humans defected. It wasn't necessarily a coup d'etat. They didn't take over God's kingdom. They just decided to leave God's kingdom. God's kingdom still stayed. God's kingdom is unshakable. It has never gone away. It just is that we went away. And so throughout hundreds of years, the story that we have in Scripture, of the, the Hebrew Scriptures, or what we call the Old Testament, is the story of God continually trying to help his people come back under his rule. And for much of that, he used individual human leaders, kings. And so now we have thousands of years down the road, we have the people of Israel who have seen incredible turmoil, incredible, uh, terrible events happening uh, in their geopolitical world. I mean, they are overtaken by one of the most uh, strongest and at times cruelest uh, empires in, in known history, the Roman Empire. And so they are coming to this realization that, you know what, we really botched things up here. We don't want our own kingdom anymore, God. We want your kingdom Bring your kingdom, God. We want your rule. We want you to make things right. We, we want to go back to how it used to be. And in a lot of ways, it was code for, get these awful Romans out of here, please. I, we are done with these people. Free us from this oppression. There were several ideas about what the kingdom of God was going to look like when it did come. A lot of people of Jesus' day, even teachers, taught that the kingdom of God would come with great waves of violence because it would need to eradicate all of the sin and the evildoers and all of the impurities and it would just kind of wipe the slate clean. And then what would be left were kind of an exclusive club of people who were well off enough to be a part of the kingdom. And popular teaching of that time stated that you would be a part of the kingdom of God if you were male, if you were fully Jewish, if you had a really good Jewish heritage bloodline, uh, if you were clean, if you were ritually clean, practicing all of the various tiny tidbits of law uh, in in their religious system, if you were wealthy, and if you were healthy, if you were not sick. This was the very exclusive group of people who could look forward to one day living in the kingdom of God, according to 
the teachers who taught in the time of Jesus. And so here we have Jesus coming with his central message, which as Matthew 4.17 tells us, his central message that he continued to preach over and over and over again is this. Repent and believe that the kingdom of God is at hand. Or others, other uh, translations say the kingdom of God is in your midst or is near. And that is the good news part. Now, repent to us doesn't always sound like good news because we tend to associate it with kind of a threat. You know, a little bit like Santa Claus is watching, watching, so you better watch out. You know, get off the naughty list. Turn around, change your attitude, buster, or I'm gonna, you know, good moms say those sorts of things. I'm, I'm learning how to do that. Change your attitude. And yet, when Jesus says repent, that's not, it's not a threat. <laughs> it's not a, you, you're getting close, you better watch it. Instead, if we really understood the heart, not only of, of Jesus, but also of, of the words that he spoke and the, the, the original words of the text, it's really more of an invitation. It's not a threat. It's a, hey, change your mind. It's really about change here. Change your mind. Change the way you think. Change what you think is possible. Yes, it is about turning, but, but it's changing your mind. So when we understand Jesus' call to repentance this way, really what he's saying is change your mind and believe and trust that the kingdom of God is right here. It is present in your very midst. It is available to you. And I'm going to back it up by showing you that the kingdom of God is full of power and I'm going to heal those who come to me. This is the good news of the kingdom. If we were to summarize, if I were to try to put it into words that wouldn't be confusing for us, words that wouldn't include kingdom language that we don't really understand, I think if Jesus were standing here in front of us today, the invitation to us would be, change your mind and think about life as an invitation to participate in the life of God. The invitation is for us to participate in God's actions, in God's desires, in God's activities, in the very life of God himself. And this idea is so vastly different from anything that we've ever heard of and so vastly different from anything that they had ever heard of that Jesus spent his entire three years of ministry and even after he resurrected from death teaching about the kingdom. Do you know that in the Gospels Jesus mentions or teaches about the kingdom over 100 times? It's kind of like the, the preacher that keeps t preaching the same sermon and the guy goes, hey, when are you going to preach something else? And the preacher goes, when you get it. Jesus kept talking about the kingdom. And so 
when we look at the Sermon on the Mount, we really are looking at the collected essence of his teaching about what it looks like to live in God's kingdom, to live as a person or persons participating in the very life of God. This is what the Sermon on the Mount is. It didn't necessarily happen. In fact, most biblical scholars believe it didn't all happen in one sitting at one time. But rather, it's a collection of all of the things that Jesus spoke, all of the kinds of things that he said throughout his ministry. These are the things that he used to teach them, is really uh, the interpretation of the Greek. And so when we look at the Sermon on the Mount, we are given Jesus's kind of compendium of, of what life is like. And he starts it all off by this incredible list of blesseds. People of Jesus's day were very familiar with this form. Every rabbi kind of had his own uh, collection of blessed statements. And they all sounded like things you would generally agree with. Blessed is the man who is wealthy and doesn't need to borrow any money. Uh, yeah, that makes sense. You don't have to owe anybody. I get that. That's, yeah. That's a person that would be blessed or well-off is another good translation for that Greek word. Uh, the man who lives with a peaceful wife is well-off. Amen. That is my husband, and he knows firsthand how wonderful it is to live with a peaceful wife. I would also like to say how blessed is the woman who lives with a peaceful husband, but they didn't say those kind of things back then. Um, So the things that the rabbis said were, they made sense. That you were like, yeah, I can see how that person would be blessed. Okay, yeah. So then what you had to do in response to that rabbi's teaching was to try to become that thing so that you could be blessed. You tried to become a wealthy person so that you could attain the blessedness of not having to borrow money. Or you tried to marry well so you could obtain the blessedness of living with a peaceful spouse. Jesus comes at it a completely different way, and I can imagine if we really were immersed ourselves in that crowd that heard Jesus say the Beatitudes the first time, he would have said, blessed are the poor in spirit. And we all would have heard a collective, what? Blessed are the, the, the poor? Seriously? That was not what I was expecting him to say. I think there was a collective gasp in the crowd, and then everybody who could identify with that statement leaned in. Oh, I... I can be that person. Dallas Willard says that a good translation for this is, blessed are the spiritual zeros. The people that really have nothing to offer and the people that you wouldn't expect to have anything to offer. The people who seem to be so outside of the realm of having the blessing of God. See, Jesus did not give us the Beatitudes in the same way that the rabbis taught These are not ways to make God happy. 
The, the Beatitudes are not ways for us to engineer our way into the kingdom. It's not like we can earn our spiritual wellness or our Christian stripes by working up the ladder of obtaining poverty of spirit and obtaining uh, I, I, you know, weeping and mourning and, and just living in, in such misery all the time and uh, being a bleeding heart and merciful and I got to do all of these things. That, that's what's going to get me into the kingdom. I think if we read the text that way, we are in serious danger of completely misunderstanding the ministry of Jesus Christ. He did not come to tell us that the kingdom is ours if we do X, Y, Z. He came to tell us that the doors have been ripped off the building. And if you were standing here in Oklahoma, this is how the gospel would sound. Y'all come. Get on in here. The Beatitudes are not a list of do's. It's not readjusting the way that we are able to make God happy or get into the kingdom. The Beatitudes are telling us, all of these people are welcome here. Let me tell you what the kingdom is like by giving you a little bit of a tour of who's here. Over here, we have the people who are so poor in spiritual issues that, I mean, you wouldn't even believe what they don't have to offer. And yet, they're here. Look. And, and over here, you have people who are mourning the most wretched, gut-wrenching kind of grieving, and yet they're right here. They are not out of reach of God's presence or God's blessing. They are right here in the middle of it. And then over here, you have people who are so hungry and so thirsty for righteousness, they crave it because they don't have it. Whether it's because of their own sin and the issues and the own, their own wrongdoing, or whether because of the injustice of the world that's been heaped up on them, they are craving something different, and they are right here in the middle of it. And Jesus is saying, I'm so glad you're here because my name is Jesus, and I am here to make things right. He says, blessed are the meek, people that the world would consider pushovers, people that can't stand up for themselves. And Jesus says, you know what? You're welcome here. You don't have to push and elbow your way into the kingdom. I'll take care of you. I'll take up for you. And on and on and on. Jesus is saying that nothing, no degree of unblessable, undesirable circumstance prevents people from entering the kingdom of God. It is not an exclusive club but we need to hear this too. It's not an exclusive club for desirable people. It's also not an exclusive club for undesirable people. The Beatitudes are not an exclusive list of the only kinds of people that can enter the kingdom of heaven. It's just a balancing out of the scales. If I were honest. Uh, I, I, I kind of think about God as, as one of those people when, when you're invited to a party at their house, you're always wondering who's going to be there. 
you know, those kind of people. You're like, I really like that they have a heart to reach out for this family or that person or this group, but I'm telling you what, those dinner conversations are so awkward. I just kind of wish they would have their own party for those people and have their own party for, you know, my group. But that's not how God operates. He invites us all, awkward and not. It's not up to us to decide who gets invited, but it is up to us to decide what we do with the invitation. I think today, if we were to make a list of people who might be beyond the realm of human acceptability in our society, it might be something like this. We need to remind ourselves that Jesus says the kingdom of God is available to the unattractive and the smelly people. The people who are crushed because of life, the flunkouts, the dropouts, the burnedouts, the drug heads, the HIV positive, and the herpes ridden, the brain damaged, the incurably ill, the barren and the pregnant too many times or the pregnant at the wrong times, people. The overemployed, underemployed, and unemployed, and the unemployable. The swindled, the shoved aside, the replaced. The lonely, the incompetent, the stupid. The always single, or the too many times divorced. The emotionally starved, or emotionally dead. Murderers, child molesters, brutal and bigoted. The drug lords and the pornographers. The war criminals and the sadists, the terrorists the perverted and the filthy and the filthy rich, the old and the young, the poor and the rich, the smart and the dumb. We might not always be comfortable that the kingdom is flung open to all these kinds of people, but it is. There's this line, beautiful line. It says, Earth has no sorrow that heaven can't heal. And if we ever ask ourselves, is that really true? Right here, in these words of Jesus, he gives a resounding yes. Earth has no sorrow that heaven can't heal. This available, present, powerful kingdom is available for you. It is right here in your midst, in the very presence of Jesus Christ. We don't have to work up to it. We don't have to try to collect little tiny pieces of it. We don't have to, we don't have to approach it as if we can, you know, edge our way in a little bit at a time, the better and better and better we get. No, Jesus says, hey, I'm, I've shown up. I'm right here. And where I am is the kingdom. So come on. Come be a part of my life. I look around our church. I look around my life experience. And I think of times in which I have been so aware of the reality of this kingdom of God. One of those times happened a couple of years ago. I was uh, 
sitting across the table from two people who I hate to admit I had kind of prejudged. And I had made up my mind that these were the kind of people that had made so many wrong life decisions that they couldn't really know God. They couldn't experience the fullness of his presence. And I'm so glad to tell you that I was very wrong. Because I sat there for an hour and a half and I could hardly hold down tears because I saw and I felt and I heard the person of Jesus Christ in them. In their love and their patience and their humility. They exhibited the fruit of the Spirit of Christ to me. And I think of my friend Deb who today experiences complete healing from what was supposed to be stage four terminal cancer. The power of the kingdom of God is in our midst. I think of women that I know who have been prayed for to deliver from barrenness and have children now. I think of my friends that I have met and walked with and celebrate recovery who have experienced all of the horrors of alcohol and drug abuse, physical and sexual abuse, abandonment, every kind of horrible thing that could be thrown at their way, and yet they know Jesus Christ and have experienced healing. Not, not only physical healing, but emotional. They are whole people. That is the power of the kingdom of God in our midst. It is here. He is here. And so today, I don't think the invitation is any different for us than the first time Jesus gave it thousands of years ago. I think if he were standing here today, he would still say to us, in fact, I know that he is standing here today and he is saying to us, you are invited to participate in my life. And what's so amazing about that to me, I mean, there are multiple layers of amazing, but really what is mysterious and dumbfounding and awe-inspiring to me is that he not only, he doesn't say, I am experiencing, I am participating in the life of God because I am God, and let me then give you little pieces of it. Do, do you get the difference? He's not doing this, he's doing this. Come participate to the fullness. Come participate like I participate, like Jesus himself. So what would it be like if you changed your mind? If, you, if we repented, what would it be like if we changed our mind and believed that that kind of power and presence of the kingdom of God was in our midst and, and available to us. What would we do with that? What would life be like if we took God up on this invitation? 
as Kyle leads us in this song. It's a song of invitation. And I think it would be incredibly appropriate for you if you wanted to come and kneel and pray, talk to the Lord about this offer that he has on the table. It would be incredibly appropriate if you need prayer for healing of any kind. If you want to take that leap, that faith journey, and say, I'm changing my mind and I am believing that the power of the kingdom is here in our midst. It might be a good time for you just to sit and ponder. Think and pray on what this invitation means and what your life might look like if you took Jesus up on it. Make no mistake, he is standing here inviting us. So what will you do with it?
as a place of prayer as long as we need it to be one. But I'd like you to stand now and I'm going to send you with a benediction, which is one of my favorite traditions of the church. It's just a blessing of good words. So if you would, just put out your hands and receive the blessing of Jesus Christ. My friends, would you go in his love? Would you go knowing and experiencing the joy and the power of his kingdom, of his life, which is available to you right now. Would you go knowing that you are blessed because you have the ability to participate in the very life of God? And would you go with gratitude? Would you go being transformed Would you go with the courage to take Jesus up on this awesome invitation? Would you go in grace and would you go in peace? You are dismissed. Please leave quietly. You have been listening to a message from Bethany First Church of the Nazarene. Visit us online at bethanynaz.org.